Hi there. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Some Other Sphere. If you enjoy it, please leave a rating on your preferred podcast platform or like and share it on social media, as it all really helps to promote the show. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter at spherical underscore pod. Thank you again, and now, on to the episode. Hello, and welcome to Some Other Sphere, a podcast exploring our strange world, one conversation at a time. Hosted by Rick Palmer. My guest for this episode is author and magical practitioner, Melissa Seams, who joined me to talk about her new book, Here Be Magic, The People and Practices of the Coven of Atho which tells an unusual story set in the early post-war years of the United Kingdom, a period that was an interesting time in the history of witchcraft in the country, as changes in legislation had allowed people to explore their interest in the occult more freely. Some began searching for evidence of pagan traditions that had survived into modern times, and this would ultimately lead to the emergence of Wicca in 1954, a movement championed by a retired civil servant, named Gerald Gardner. Here Be Magic, however, focuses on the lives of Charles Cardell, the son of an internationally famous Victorian stage magician, and Ray Howard, an unusual character who claimed to have been bequeathed a mysterious artefact called the Head of Atho, a striking wooden altarpiece featuring an array of occult symbols and purported to be thousands of years old. The idea of the coven itself has a somewhat confusing origin, but seems to have been born out of the relationship between Cardell and Howard, which started well, but ended acrimoniously with accusations of witchcraft and a messy high court libel case. In the interview, I talked with Melissa about how her own interest in magic and witchcraft began, and then we move on to discuss how she progressed from first writing about the coven in a 2007 article, onto researching and writing about the people and events who together make up the story, of the Coven of Atho in much more detail. It's a complicated but fascinating tale, and it was a very fun conversation. Enjoy! Melissa, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Before we get to talking about the Coven of Atho and your new book, how did your own interest in witchcraft and magic begin? Um... Well, I think when I was very young, I was probably a bit of an unusual child. I, I, I had a very sort of strong spiritual impulse um, and I used to go to a Baptist church uh, with my godmother, who was an organist there. And I, I was really, you know, into the idea of Jesus and God and spirituality. And I used to say all my prayers. And then as I got older, um, I always had a love for nature as well. And um you know, conventional Christianity just wasn't doing it for me. And I became aware of other sort of spiritual paths, um, paganism, started buying books. I think one of my first ones was um, Hedgewitch by Ray Beth um, and also got into Ceremonial Magic by Dolores Ashcroft Nowicki, Ritual Magic Workbook. And I sort of worked through that. Um, I found Ceremonial Magic a bit solitary and isolating. So I branched out and sort of formed a sort of generic pagan group with um, some other like-minded people in Peterborough, um, formed a sort of circle called Coven of the Silverwood. Um, And from there, I went on to the Farrars and learned about Gardnerian witchcraft. And um, yeah, and I've been involved now in witchcraft and also ceremonial magic as well for um, over 30 years now. Um, so yeah, so that's kind of kind of it, really. <laughs> okay, so what was it like going from practicing magic in a solitary fashion to starting a group? What sort of things did that require, and how did how did you go about doing that? Um, well, I think well, actually it was quite funny because back then, um, so we'd we'd be talking about the later nineteen eighties. 
you know, it wasn't really, it was before the, so most people had access to the internet. So what I used to do was I used to go to the library and um, I'd order in books, you know, like the Ferrars, like Doreen Valiente, and I would leave notes in them um, saying to people who were then going to check the book out in the future to sort of get in touch with me. And I think I left my, my address in there. And basically, as a result of that, I got a couple of successes and met uh, um, a man who was to become my first high priest called David Johnson. And I met various, very, various other people. Um, but I said, I sort of, ceremonial magic is sort of something that you do inside, sort of in your own space. But I really always had this love for nature and, and it was just really nice to get out there. And we found a little spot in a local woodland and I used to write little rituals um, based on the material I was reading. And then, you know, as I developed, I started writing things myself and poetry. Um, and I, I just liked that that more kind of inclusive um, celebration. Um, I mean, paganism is is a much more um, I don't know, kind of more joyous ceremonial magic can be can be quite sort of stayed, very focused, um, a little bit more. Um, so cerebral, I suppose, ceremonial magic, um, whereas paganism was just some more spontaneous, some more of joy in life and observing and connecting with the earth and the seasons as they go by. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> OK, so when you set up your group, it was to kind of have that spiritual experience. I think sometimes, I guess, when I imagine a coven, I, I sometimes think perhaps that they're they're doing rituals to sort of achieve something but with your group was it more to have that experience of connecting with nature and with in a spiritual way yeah I think I think it was and it was about very much connecting with mother earth and observing the seasons and the different feelings that come with the seasons as well I mean a Beltane ritual is very different from a from a sort of Samhain Halloween ritual um yeah so yeah, but I mean, we did also do specific things like spells and magic for specific things. If one of us was ill, and we'd make little charms and things like that. But it was just so much more fun being able to do that sort of thing with others rather than being, you know, alone inside. Um, I, I remember when I did Dolores Ashcroft Nowicki's Ritual Magic Workbook, I made this temple sh um, on, a, on a white sheet and I'd I'd stuck felt on it and various things and I was standing there by myself and um, yeah that doesn't it's a very different experience from some sort of doing magical practices um, outside in a wood with with other people you know at night time with candles it's very evocative hmm. yeah doing uh, these sort of magical practices in in a woodland and places like that did as you did it more often, um, did your perception of those places change? I'm, I'm wondering if your experience of them, of that place and and the woods changed as, as you continued to do rituals there. Uh, yes, they did, actually. I mean, we always used this particular site in a place called Home Fen near Peterborough, which is where I was born. And um, after using the same ritual site and casting the circle in the same place, I'm, I swear that we'd arrive at night time and it's like I could almost see the glow of the circle still from the last time we'd used it. Um, and, you know, you sort of form associations. In Home Fen, there was this big hawthorn tree there and um, that kind of became the kind of goddess of the circle sort of thing. And it was surrounded by silver birches as well, which are a very feminine kind of tree. Um, yeah, so it it just became really, really special and, um, you know, just out in, in the real world rather than inside in, in the brick house sort of thing. Yeah, it, it sounds wonderful. Yeah, it was a, a, lot, a lot of fun, a lot of fun. I miss those days. <laughs> <laughs> so moving on to the Covenant of Atho, you first wrote about them in an article in 2007, I believe. How did that come about? Yeah, so with that, um, long story short, um, I'd, I'd, I'd become very friendly with another author, Philip Hesselton. Um, basically, um, when, when I was about 1920, um, I'd, I'd become very desperate, or, you know, absolutely desperate to join a Gardnerian or Alexandrian coven. Uh, long story short, as I came across this high priest up in Scotland, um, it's, it's really quite an amazing sort of one in a million chance story. And it, it turned out that he was a 
close friend of Gerald Gardner's and he'd kind of gone under the radar for decades. Um, so I, I popped up on the scene um, in the witchcraft scene probably about to 20 or so years ago, um, once everything went online on the internet. And um, I, I wanted, I was initially uh, met with sort of um, distrust um, because nobody had heard of, of my high priest then who was called Charles Clark. And so I set out to sort of prove this. I mean, I had letters and information that he'd given me. So I, I went to people like Philip Pesselton and I said, you know, have you got any evidence of Charles Clark? And Philip, Philip sent me a, a whole load of stuff and there were extracts and Doreen's notebooks, all of which confirmed that Charles Clark was um, a valid member of the early Wicca in the 1950s. Um, so I had access to all, all this stuff and I started gathering all this stuff together. And my very first article was about Charles Clark and I, I used the evidence to put him firmly on the map and, and nobody could dispute it. But uh, while looking at all this stuff, I w there was lots of other things that I found interesting. And um, um, I, I got hold of copies of um, Doreen Valiente for about 30 or 40 years. She kept scrapbooks in which she stuck in all newspaper clippings um, pertaining to witchcraft and magic. And um, I started writing other articles because I found them interesting. And I came across this series of newspaper clippings from the 1960s about this coven of Atho and um, Charles Cardell and uh, Ray Howard. So I wrote an article and by then I was submitting my articles to Mike Howard who was who ran the UK's The Cauldron magazine and um, I always remember he he got back to me and said it was a really great article and um, I promised him that I would write a second article but instead I had a I had a second child and um, which basically took me off the radar for 10 years um, so yeah so that was how I how I wrote the first first article it was something I like to write stuff that's not been really written about before and I was in a fortunate position because I'd had access to some of this historical material um, through people like Philip Hesselton and um, so yeah so then in the uh, beginning of last year um, a good friend of mine Clive Harper he sent me a little um, pin badge with a trident on it which is the sign of the Coven of Atho and you know and he, he said to me you know why don't you write another article and over the years, because I've, I've run a website as well, thewicker.co.uk, and over the years, if I get inquiries through that, often there were quite a lot of people always asking me about the Coven of Atho, and I've never done any further research beyond my first article. And so as it was locked down and none of us were going anywhere last year, I sat down and I thought, yeah, all right, then I'll, I'll write another article. Um, and then Clive Harper started sending me, you know, he, he'd got access to some letters that Charles Cardell had sent to people, as well as copies of um, some of Charles Cardell's more obscure um, booklets like Witchcraft from 1963. And he, it basically all got me really fired up. And so I set off and I thought, I'll write another article, but it turned into a book, basically. <laughs> Yeah, so um, going on to the book, I guess it's it's important to sort of discuss who the key players are. But what I found from reading the article, especially, is that uh, it, Doreen Valiente is somebody who, in the story of the Covenant, she interacts with with those main players um, and was a sort of a key figure as well in that era, that sort of that nineteen fifties, nineteen sixties era when Wicker is really sort of seemed to take off in the UK. Can you just talk a little bit about Doreen Valiente and who she was and the the situation in the 1950s when it comes to the beginnings of what we would come to know as Wicca? Yeah, I mean, Doreen Valiente, she was just fabulous. I mean, I think she spent her life genuinely questing for evidence of, you know, witchcraft that had survived, you know, for potentially hundreds of years um, as, as perhaps um, some of your listeners will know, she was um, met Gerald Gardner in the early fifties and sort of became one of the sort of first, one of the first early high priestesses of modern Gardnerian witchcraft. Um, but she was always questioning, and she went off, you know, on to she, she worked with Robert Cochrane, and in, in 1958, not long after Charles Cardell had published an article in Light called The Craft of the Wiccans. 
she took it upon herself to go and uh, meet him. And at that time, there are letters where it shows that she's she's wondering about sort of joining forces with him and she seemed genuinely intrigued by him and his story um so uh, she she went to visit him in his temple in his Charles Cardell had a psychological consultancy on Queensgate in London and uh, she went to visit him there and he showed her various things and he told her that his mum was in the craft and that when she died she'd left him um, and his sister Mary, although she wasn't his sister, um, her a fame and, and bracelets. Um, so Doreen became quite quite capti- captivated by Charles Cardell and his story. Um, although Charles Cardell's witchcraft wasn't called the Coven of Atho, he used to refer to it as the old tradition. Um, it's it's quite a difficult story to tell this because the Coven of Atho is really more associated with Ray Howard, who also knew, knew Doreen. Um, mm. So Ray Howard comes into the picture in the early 60s. But um, yeah, going back to Doreen, I mean, if, if you're ever interested in paganism or, or anything like that, Doreen Valiente's books are, are very popular. They're very accessible. Um, you know, and she's, she was a really straight, straight talker. Um, but she kept quite extensive notebooks and, as I've already mentioned, scrapbooks of newspaper clippings. So she was also a bit of a historian, a collector, and a lot of her stuff is really invaluable to modern craft historians who are trying to untangle the history of modern witchcraft. Um, and I think untangling, untangling that story is something really important because um, I think we need to understand where it all came from and how it came about um, I think in order to understand perhaps where we're going in the future. Um, so I, I like to try and get everything nailed down quite historically as accurately as, as I can. And so, so Doreen's archives are, are absolutely priceless for that. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's what I could waffle on. So. <laughs> no, no, yeah, I, I, I get what you mean. Um, so you, you talk about Doreen questing and... Prior to meeting with Charles and Mary Cardell, she spent time with Gerald Gardner. Yeah. Um, was she questing for something specific, or um, it, I get the sense she was looking for something true or, or some, some sort of legitimate traditional practice? Um, is, is that is that the case? And and why do you think this was starting to happen in the era that it was? Yeah, I think with Doreen, that that was the case. I think she genuinely wanted to believe in in the survival of of witchcraft that you know would survive potentially for hundreds of years. Um, and I, I think the reason it all became very pertinent in the nineteen fifties, especially, was you had the repeal of the witchcraft law. I think in nineteen fifty one, and it was also not long after the end of the Second World War. And so obviously, with the, the you know this country particularly had lost a lot of young men and um, I think there was a need for a more nurturing force and um, ideology to I think people were were wanting basically a mother you know wanting the nurturing influences of a mother and um, along came Gerald Gardner with this uh, concept of of witchcraft which had a you know a goddess Um, also I mean it was combined with um, working sky clad naked which was very freeing. Um, there was a sort of uh, one of the waves of feminism, I think, was starting to rise up in the 1950s. So, so it all sort of came together, and um, I think the timing was just was just right for it. Um, I mean, I suppose you could you could argue it was a development of the early spiritualism and things like that from the beginning of uh, the 1900s. But the goddess really did seem to come riding in quite strongly in the 1950s and 60s. And, and so hence modern witchcraft back then attracted a lot of um, women, you know, who became high priestesses. And, um, you know, the goddess, as well as the god, is very prominent in a lot of um, practices of modern witchcraft. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess we better get on to some of the other main characters in this story. Uh, we've mentioned... Charles Cardell and, and Mary Cardell a couple of times already. So who who are these people uh, and what is their role in the story of the coven? Right, yeah. So Charles Cardell, um, I think 
there's always one phrase that comes to mind when I think of him, and I think it's magnificently single-minded. And I think he was doing a similar thing in a way to Gerald Gardner. Um, so Charles Gardner was born in 1895, and we've got evidence um, that back in 1915 that he even then he had a very strong interest in magic and particularly Egyptian stuff. Um, and I think he'd kind of, I don't know how old his material actually is. Um, I mean, he said that he was, things were given to him by his mother after she died. But the thing is, when the year, when he was telling that to Doreen in 1958, his mum his mum was actually still alive. So that can't be quite true. But then they were all doing that. They were all in, inventing stories. And, you know, you had Gerald Gardner say that one of his ancestresses was, one of his ancestors was a, a witch burnt at a stake and there's no truth in that. Um, but yeah, so so Charles Gardell really comes into the into the witchcraft scene really in the 1950s with his with his my, my his articles he wrote in Light magazine. And um that was really what brought him to the fore. But he he, there's a suggestion, I mean, he certainly knew Gerald Gardner at, at one point, and in fact, Gerald Gardner sent um, Jack um, Bracelin, um, Dayonis, and Fred Lamond to go and meet him in the late 1950s. Um, there's some evidence to suggest that Gerald Gardner actually initiated Charles Cardell as well. Um, but, um, yeah, so... <sighs> So you've kind of got Charles Cardell is, is there on the scene. He's writing these articles in light. And the thing is, this article in light is calling out to members of the old traditions um, who he calls Wiccans, um, spelt W-I-C-C-E-N-S. And he's seeking for them to all come out of the shadows and get together and preserve their history and their rituals and their artefacts. Um, so that was kind of what piqued Doreen's interest in, in him. Um, but I think in, in many ways he was perhaps doing something similar to Gerald Gardner, but but in a very different way to Gerald Gardner. Charles Cardell was not into working things clad, and he was also not at all into the word witch or witchcraft, which he personally believed was an invention of the church, in, which was used to persecute and, and you know, kill, kill and torture people back in the burning times. Um, so... Yeah, so that's... <laughs> so I keep going off on tangents, don't I? <laughs> no, no, that's quite okay. Um, I know from uh, reading the article that Charles Cardell, he had a he had a background early on in life, um, or his father had a, had a background as a stage magician and Charles Cardell would help with that. Do you think that that influenced this part of his life later on in, in any way? I think it did, yeah. I mean, Charles Cardell himself was also on, on the stage doing magic and he had a particular flair, apparently, for hypnotism. Um, and he was also very good friends with the mentalist, uh, Tony Corinda, who's, who's still held in high regard by stage magicians. Um, so, But yet, Charles Cardell also had this very big sort of psychological understanding. So he practised as a psychologist, although I don't think he ever had any official qualifications um, but for him, I think his magic was very much, he saw it as a psychological process. And I think perhaps in part to distinguish stage magic from this other kind of magic, he added a K to the word magic. So when Cardell writes about magic as in sort of witchy magic, he's got, he's put a K, he puts a K on the end of the, uh, the word. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it, it was it was his father and his upbringing, I think, was very influential. And not only that, I think it also told him a lot about how people respond and how how it is, how you can sort of trick people as far as stage magic are concerned. I always think of people like Darren Brown, who who uh, is, is a very modern kind of, um, I can't remember what he called it, psychological illusionist, Darren Brown calls himself. And, he's, and Darren Brown obviously has a very good understanding of people and the way they think and how to get them to think things and I think Charles Cardell was probably similar um, but he also used that as, as a way for wanting to people to become fully actualized and fully aware um, and I think that was all part of his process of magic. Right yeah okay because um, when Doran Valiente meets 
Charles Cardell. He, him and Mary, they're running a, a practice, aren't they, in London? I, I found that interesting. Yeah, so from that psychological consultancy on Queensgate, he would specialise in treating people who were... Uh, who, who who felt things like perhaps aliens were following them. I think one of the stories was that one of his clients was convinced that she was being hypnotised through a wall. And what he would do is he would go to those people and and basically explain to them the reality of, of what was happening. So with the example of the woman who thought she was being hypnotised through a wall, I'm sure Cardell would have said to her, you know, well, this is how hypnotism works, and he would then demonstrate it. And he was very au fait with the tricks of the spiritualist mediums. So anybody who was upset by that or thought that they'd seen perhaps apparitions or anything like that, he would reveal to them the reality of how those sort of tricks were done. So that was certainly one side of his of his work. And he genuinely seemed to believe that his work was healing towards these people, you know, able to revealed reality behind what it was that they were thinking yeah so that was uh, that was kind of what he did from queen's gate right and so with with that in mind with gerald garner you get the impression that he he sort of actively wanted to encourage a, a system of practice with a coven do you, do you think that charles and mary cardell wanted to do that do you, do you think they wanted to popularize a, a means a means of practicing well, they, I guess they wouldn't call it witchcraft, but well, I know, and this is why it's so difficult to talk to talk about about this. Really, I don't think they were seeking to to promote as such. I think Charles Cardell did think that there was some relics of sort of British traditional kind of we'll, we'll call it witchcraft, even though he wouldn't have done. Um, and um, but I think the way that he did it to get these ideas out were through his. Um, double cot magic productions, um, pamphlets and booklets that they produced in the 1960s. Um, so there's quite a lot of um, his magic in there. The missing link in all this really is, is, is Ray Howard because, I mean, Charles Cardell would never in a million years have come out and said, yes, I'm practising, you know, witchcraft. But... The the thing is, is that the, he was observed in 1961 by two reporters. Him and Mary were observed in 1961 in the back of back of their property in Charlwood, performing what anybody would consider to be some sort of witchcraft ritual. Um, that actually ended up as a high court case, which I won't go off to on. I won't go off off on, but um, I'm convinced that they were doing something in the back of their woods in 1961, and there was probably about a dozen others involved, um, possibly Margaret Bruce and also Alwyn Green. But he wasn't actively promoting his kind of witchcraft as a complete system. I think he was more like. Um, dropping bits of it um into his work and his publications right okay i mean on that topic i again in in your article you you talk about how some of the 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 concepts that are in charles cardell's um, let's call it a model are things like the seven d's of moon magic and something called the list of witch words which i don't think is ascribed to anybody but it's it's, it's like this material which which seems to be considered something that can be used in in a magical practice and i was wondering when it comes to the actual atho in this story is, mm. is that do you think that's where that's coming from i mean the especially something like the those seven d's that, that seems like there's a connection there it is, and I think Ray, Ray Howard is sort of the, the missing link with this. So Ray Howard enters the picture in the 1950s because he moved to um, uh, Charlwood, which is where Charles and Mary Cardell were living, and they employed him as a handyman in the late 1950s. Um, it seems that they sort of told him about their practices, um, and then in, in 1960, um, Ray Howard, I believe, goes away and makes the head of Atho. Uh, he then starts touting it about, saying that it's, um, you know, over 2,000 years old, this, this wooden head of Atho. And he goes on to publish um, an Atho correspondence course in 1962. 
Now, the interesting thing about that is, is in the Yatho Correspondence course, you've got various things like you've got use of the Septogram and you've got the seven Ds of moon magic and things like that. Well, those are all things that Charles Cardell and Mary Cardell were using or we've got evidence of them using um, before earlier than that. So what, what seems to have happened is that they met Ray Howard. Ray Howard liked, liked what they've got. Put, put the head of Atho, in fact, probably created the head of Atho, created a whole narrative around the head of Atho and of how it was left to him by the gypsy Alicia Frank in the 1930s. And then he went and published the course. So what we, what we can see from the evidence really is that um, a lot of the material in the Coven of Atho Correspondence Course in 1962 was in evidence and being used earlier by Charles and Mary Cardell. The thing is, those two, had they had a parting of ways, um, because in 1960, uh, I think it was 1960, 61, Ray Howard got divorced from his wife, and Charles and Mary Cardell gave evidence against him in that. And this, this started a bit of a tit for tat that went on over many years between the two parties. Um, so yeah so you've got like oh, <laughs> this is such a big story so you've got like pierced effigies being sent and then you had ray howard going to the london evening news saying i've got a good story for you i know these two people that are doing witchy practices at the back of their house which ended up um with with two reporters witnessing the practices of charles and mary cardell in 1961 you know, and I must say, when I started writing this book, I wasn't sure who to believe or what to believe, um, because you've got this all throughout it. You've got Charles and Mary, Charles Cardell particularly, saying that they weren't witches, they, they didn't do witchcraft and all this sort of thing. And then you've got this whole story with Ray Howard and you've got these these witness reports of what these news reporters witnessed at the back of Charles and Mary Cardell's house in 1961. And when I discovered that one of the reporters was a very well-known one called William Hall, and he wasn't a gutter press reporter, and I got hold of his court statements. And when I read that, I was absolutely convinced. It all fell into place. Charles and Mary Cardell were practising some form of witchcraft, but they were never going to publicly go on record and say that. But where it came from, I don't really know. Right. So, so going back to Ray Howard, Let's just talk about his early life prior to meeting Charles and Mary. You mentioned it briefly there. Like he, he has a similar bestowing of magical artifacts on him that Charles Cardell says that he did. Um, yeah. Uh, so just talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so so Ray Howard said that when he was a child, a few years old, living in Swaffham in Norfolk, that there was a, a gypsy there called Alicia Frank who saw him playing by a village pond one midsummer's day and took that as some sort of sign. And apparently she took him under her wing and uh, one night she took him to a secret ritual in some woods where there were people wearing different coloured cloaks and she gave him some red wine to, to drink. And he, he says that these people were speaking in strange languages and that she told him that when she died, she would leave him a legacy. And apparently this is this she did. And he says that he left her this wooden head of Atho and various other artefacts, including documents. And I think there was a chest in, uh, containing some teeth and, and things like that. So this was the story that Ray, ha Ray Howard came out and was telling everybody from in the 1960s onwards. Um, as I said, the problem with that is that Ray Howard's son remembers his dad making the head of Atho in 1960. So it, it all kind of puts, uh, casts quite a, um, a bit of a doubt over the authenticity of Ray Howard's story. Um, mm. So I think Ray Howard was, was somebody who was... Um, always out to sort of, you know, make, make a bit of money in any way that he could. And I think that what he did was he got involved with Charles and Mary Cardell and took some of their ideas and tried to commercialise it with the Coven of Atho Correspondence Course in 1962. Um, and with the head of Atho as well, I mean, that bestowed quite a mystique upon upon it all, really. But that's actually where the, the phrase the Coven of Atho comes from, is that's really to do with Ray Howard and his correspondence course, 
but yet that course is clearly based on stuff that the Cardells were doing earlier. So, Right, okay. So how long do you think perhaps Ray Howard was doing magical practice with the Cardells? Do you think he might have taken part in a ritual similar to the one that was seen by those reporters? Uh, well, he, he certainly, he, there is a book by, uh, I think it's Peter Haining, where there is an account where Howard is saying that they, they made him take part in a ritual. Um, I, I don't think that's that's true. It just doesn't seem right or in keeping with the personalities. Um, but I think I think they probably were in, intrigued. Um, I think they the story is that they asked Ray Howard to sort of become a bit of a medium for them because the sort of Cardell's old tradition and the, the Coven of Athen material there's a lot of kind of trance work and kind of meditation kind of in it. Um, so I, I think I think he perhaps did work with them. Yeah, when they were all friendly, he perhaps did get involved with some of their magic magical practices. Yeah, and as I said, and then following the divorce, it all kind of um, it all became a, a bit of a battleground between them. I think. Right. Okay. And the name Atho. Do you think that was a word that Ray Howard? heard from the Cardells that something that might be from a some other tradition right well in 1958 Charles Cardell is mentioning an Athor A-T-H-O-R um it's in one of the adverts that he uses or one of the articles he writes in Light magazine um I think perhaps Ray Howard perhaps took it from there and for whatever reason dropped dropped the R. It's it's quite difficult to untangle. I know Doyne Valiente, because Doyne Valiente also knew Ray Howard. Um she first wrote about him in her notebooks in 1961. And um I think uh, I mean Doreen comes to the conclusion that she thinks that Atha actually comes from the word Ardu, which means dark one. Um and that I think in Welsh, apparently, it's supposedly pronounced with a, a th sound, so that if it was said, it would sound like atho um, rather than, you know, the sort of the ardu word. Um, I mean, I, I did a bit of research on the word atho, and, and I, there isn't, I couldn't find anything historically. I mean, there's a suggestion it could tie in with Arthur and maybe King Arthur and Artos, which is a, a variant um, etymological origin of the word Arthur. Um, it's, it's, very, it's very difficult to know where, exactly where the word Athor has come from, but it seems to be from Ray Howard. It's just whether he derived it from Athor, which we know Cardell used in the late 1950s. Hmm. Um, so I don't really know exactly on that one. I think one of my, um, my sort of favourite ideas about it is that we know Cardell was very much into his Egyptian stuff, and uh, there was an 1870 book um, by Hargrave Jennings called The Rosicrucians, Their Rites and Mysteries. And it speaks of um, how in early ages the Egyptians worshipped the highest being under the name Athor, A-T-H-O-R, and he was the Lord of the Universe. Um, I suspect that might have been where Cardell got the name Athor from, um, but how it ended up being Athor under, under Ray Howard, I, I don't really know. Right, okay. And Doreen Valiente, she is initiated by Ray Howard, isn't she? Uh, in 1963, I believe. Yeah, so he, uh, yeah, it's quite interesting because Ray Howard is, although he's no longer living in Charwood, um, in November, October, November that year, him and his then wife, or soon to be second wife, go back to Charlwood and are staying in a in a pub there. And Doreen arranges to go and meet them there. And while there, um, Ray Howard gives her the first initiation for Rank of Sarsen into the Coven of Atho. Um, I'd like to think that they might have snuck onto uh, Charles Cardell's estate um, because where the Inner Grove was, where Charles Cardell and Mary Cardell used to do their practices, was a place in this woodland which backed onto their estate. And it's a place where two streams meet which is a concept that's quite um, often mentioned by Charles Cardell. And where Ray Howard was staying, you could actually walk across the field and get to this particular inner grove area. 
And it's very tempting to think that they might have all snuck in there and used the inner grove, although I don't think for one minute that Charles Cardell would have been there and present. But yeah, but you're, you're right. The um, As Doreen, as I think she's written in one of her books or somewhere, she did um, receive an initiation to the rank of Sarsen into the Coven of Atho at Halloween 1963. And... Um, there's there's a suggestion she could have gone to the second rank, Sister of Atho, in 1967. Um, that's something I write about in my in my book, um, just based on some of the evidence. Because um, Doreen Valiente wrote two main Coven of Atho, I suppose, kind of books of shadows, in which she she wrote most of the material about the Coven of Atho that she was given by Ray Howard. Um, and we also know Ray Howard showed us some other material as well, which probably no longer survives, which could have been from Cardell's writings. Um, the, the picture gets gets a bit complex, really, and it's not as clear as I'd have liked it to have been. Um, but I kind of just tried to do the best I could with what I could get hold of and what was what was still left, really. Oh, absolutely. No, I, I think you did a, a great job. I mean, the the information that Doreen Valiente gets from Ray Howard about about the Covenant and its practices is is pretty detailed. I mean, do you think that Ray Howard got everything from the Cardells or or I'm I'm trying to work out if he was someone who was doing this to make money or he had a genuine interest in in this sort of stuff? Well, according to Ray Howard's family, he he did have a lifelong interest in alternative things, particularly in his older in his older years. He had a he had a passion for ley lines and things like that. Um, it's it's very it's very difficult to say. I mean, I I think a lot of the his Kevin Arthur correspondence course from nineteen sixty two, a lot of the elements of it were mentioned by the Cardells earlier. And I think the main thing that Ray Howard added to it was the Coven of Atho and the whole story of Alicia Frank, and um, there were there were other elaborations that that he added onto it about these. There were the pictures that he showed Doreen Valiente, which supposedly Alicia Frank had shown him. Um, I mean, certainly, you know, in the 1960s, he set up, he, he had an antique shop in a place called Field Dalling, and, and upstairs he had, like, a, a witchy room, which which he displayed the head of Atho in and various other sort of witchy type of things. Um, and he would go on television and he would give talks about the head of Atho, and I'm sure there was probably an exchange of money somewhere. I know he sold the, the Coven of Atho correspondence course um, I think it was a few guineas. I can't remember how much it was. So I think he, I think he was sort of in part perhaps using it to try and make a bit of money. But it also he does seem to have had an interest in alternative things as well. Um, so I think it was a mixture of both. Right. Okay. And so for Charles and Mary Cardell, when do you think that their sort of connection to the the witchcraft again a word they wouldn't like, but it's the mm. best word to, to use. Um, the witchcraft yeah. side of the story ends. Is it around the time that the libel trial begins? Um, well, who knows? I mean, <laughs> the the libel trial, yeah, certainly. Is, I mean, I find the story quite sad, really, um, because you know there they are, this libel case. I mean, following which, I mean, they lost, they lost the libel case, and um, Charles Cardart, she was declared bankrupt, and as a result of which, they had to sell off acres and acres of their large property because they had I think it was 40 acres of land in Charlwood and they were forced to sell three quarters of it um but throughout it all I mean they I mean Charles Cardell died in 1977 and he and I think Mary Cardell in 1984 but throughout all that time at Charlwood they were known to the locals as being unusual and they were known as being witches um they had quite um uh, a story surrounding them there, there was even a story that some of the there was sort of like the post post people would refuse to go there and things like that and there are stories in Charlwood today of 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 strange happenings there of statues in the gardens of pentagrams on the walls in their property um there's there's quite a nice story about a healing incident that Charles Cardell did on a, on a young girl after she fell over um so, you know, I, d I don't think, I think it very much was their part of their life while they were at Dumblecott and in living at Charlwood. 
Um, so I don't think it would have left them. Um, I just don't think they wanted to for it all to be cast into the, the public light of the libel case. I actually think they probably hadn't expected the libel case to go all the way to High Court. I think they were hoping perhaps that the um, London Evening News were going to settle um, before it even got that far. But it did go all the way. And... Um, but it, it was it's quite strange because even even in that libel case, they were not going to admit to any of it. And they came up with this story that um, the things in the wood, because the, the, the reporters had witnessed an altar in the woods with um, a shrunken head on and cauldrons and glass balls and things like that. And they made up this story that it was all a ruse that was used as a, a prop to advertise some of their jumble cut magic production items, particularly their Moon Magic Beauty Cream, which was one of their flagship products. Um, but the thing, the thing is, at the time in 1961, you know, they didn't actually mention that. They only kind of mentioned this in the libel case, but they hadn't mentioned it when they'd spoken to reporters in 1961. They just flatly sort of tried to deny it all. So it's like they kind of tried to make up the story after the fact to try and disguise the fact that there were strange things in their woods, including an altar and, and glass balls and things like that. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you mentioned the, that beauty cream. That was that's something that slipped my mind actually. But um, you include a poster for that in or, or an advertising pamphlet for that in the book, and it's it is sort of couched in weirdness. That some of the language used to advertise it is is quite odd. Um, so it definitely feels like in some way they. They enjoyed using this sort of subject matter to, for one reason or another. Perhaps not for witchcraft, but for yeah, you know, for, for marketing things and the, the the effectiveness of those things. Yeah, yeah, they did. There was the publications as well were quite interesting that that they did. Um, and uh, you know, I think I mentioned them because they sort of joined, sort of semi-joined forces with another herbalist who was quite well known at the time called Margaret Bruce. And she she ran a mail order catalogue, mostly herb and incense and herbal remedies and things like that. Um, but, um, yeah, so it's just a really strange, strange story. Um, I mean, I think the High Court case... For me, really, certainly the witness report by William Hall really clinched it for me that they were doing some form of witchcraft in their woods. But as I say, but also, but they did also have this kind of magic productions thing where they were trying to sort of, in a way, disseminate um, myths and. Um, Oh, I don't know. It's, it's all right. Next question. Next question. <laughs> I've gone off on the tangent again. No, no, that's okay. So, I mean, do we know of any other people that signed up for the correspondence course, the the, the course that Ray Howard was selling? I mean, I'm not sure if we, you'd have that information, but do you think that many other people, apart from Doreen Valiente, kind of? Yeah. I don't, I don't know. We don't have any figures on that. There was another woman called Diane Richmond that I know that she did it and apparently used some of the rituals from it with success. Um, uh, but yeah, we don't, we don't really know how many people actually took it. Um, I mean, the Kevin Arado Afo correspondence course is, has been fully reproduced in, in Here Be Magic um, for, for people to make of it what they will really. Um, yeah. Was it something designed for, say, one person to purchase and then they would create their own group? Yeah, I think so. And there was the invitation that was implicit in, in the course was that if you took the course that you could then go and see the, the head of Atho and meet Ray Howard um, and I suppose be part of that kind of circle of things. Yeah. Right. OK. No, that's really interesting. So... Something else that I'm interested in is: Do you think that the the practices, the the concepts, and the rituals that are included within the Coven of Atho and the course, you know, the material that Ray Howard assembled and and put into this material for the for the course, do you, do you think that's something that that if there had been better fortune would have taken off? It, it, we would be talking about Cardellian or Howardian Wicca. 
Um, well, it could have been. It's, it's very different from sort of Gardner and like Alexandrian witchcraft. I mean, in some ways, it's got some real gems in it. Um, they've got they've got the concept of the the male being solar and the female being lunar, and they've got it's got a couple of really good, interesting positions in it called the pentagram position, where you'd stand with your arms outstretched. Um, I think it's left left palm of your hand up and right palm down or it might be the way around I can't remember and then they'd, they'd stand like that and they'd use that position to charge themselves up by looking at the moon and then they would go from that position into what was called the trident position which is where you raise your arms up either side of your head and that was that was a projective position so they would project that energy that they'd I suppose gathered and they'd project that onto the focus of, of their work um, I think that's really quite an interesting um, idea. And I do like the, the lunar and solar aspects that we can see in the Coven of Athe material. Um, they also use things like the, um, the horn, which is something that's often associated with more traditional witchcraft practices. It's not something you see in Gardnerian or Alexandrian witchcraft, for example. Um, and, uh, but... Yeah, and I think there was generally a lot of sort of trancey stuff, and I think almost like animism and sort of contact with spirits of things um, is also, I think, quite a key feature of it. I mean, I mean, I've I've really got a Gardnerian witchcraft background, so one of the challenges for me when I started researching this was I, I felt that I was going into the area more of, of a traditional witchcraft. So I, I contacted the author Sharni Oates and asked her whether she had any thoughts on the practices of the Coven of Atho as compared to Robert Cochran's um, witchcraft, which is more traditional. Um, and she, she has actually written an appendix, which is in, which is in my book. Um, it's, the Coven of Atho material is very different from Gardner and Alexandrian stuff. I would say it is more of a traditional witchcraft there, and it does have some very interesting ideas in it. Cardell himself also said that it had druidic, druidic influences in it, and concepts of stones and stone circles are something that's also evident in it. So you've got that in the, the first rank, which is when you're made a sarsen. And as you probably know, sarsens are the names given to the some of the largest stones in stone circles, such as Stonehenge and Avebury. So when you became a sarsen of the Coven of Atho, you know, you you became like a, one of those kind of stones, I suppose, in a circle. Um, uh, Charles Cardell had a stone circle on his on his property, which he erected. Um, so again, this is where you've got the stuff in the Coven of Atho correspondence course tying in so and so nicely with what Charles Cardell had done on his own property earlier, which you know, which as I mentioned earlier, I think Ray Howard probably took a lot of it from Cardell. Yeah, I mean, I, like you say, you, you you include the Coven of Atho material in your book, and it, it's very it's very thorough. Like it definitely seems like it is something that people can take away and work with and and you know create something meaningful yeah i think i think you can i mean there i mean there are enigmas in it and i think you already mentioned these seven d's which were basically like virtues and this is again is one of the weird things so you've got you've got seven d's that cardell was using in the 1950s and they've been changed slightly by ray howard in the covenant of the correspondence course so they're they're slightly different but the fact is that they are both the seven the seven Ds. And um um so again it's it's like you get the impression that Ray Howard is tinkering with stuff material that he probably got from Charles Cardell. Um I mean I looked at the, I mean there's actually a whole list of, of words um associated with the Coven of Atho and I, I looked at them and tried to find, you know, an origin for them, but I I just couldn't find them. Um but on, we have evidence for Charles Cardell using them more frequently than Ray Howard ever did. So again, this is another example of what I think is what happened was that Cardell was using them. He was the main user. He was the first user of the material. And Ray Howard then goes and tinkers about with it, changes things slightly, and then publishes his form in the Coven of Atho Correspondence Course in 1962. Um, so yeah, and there's 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 some other weird, some strange concepts in it. The Sotar and Ratos. They have a. They also have the Wheel of Life with the eight spokes. 
um, but very much an emphasis on the five senses, um, which again is something that you don't really get in Gardnerian and Alexandrian witchcraft. And the wheel in, 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 those, in that case is usually used for the wheel of the year. In the Coven of Atho case, it is also used for wheel of year, but it, they associate it with sense, the five senses, um, five of them associated with senses, yeah. Mm, yeah, I mean, it's a fascinating story all, all round. <laughs> <laughs> it is, but it's 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 so it's so it's quite complicated. I'm finding it difficult to to explain because uh, you're trying to deal with somebody where all the evidence was saying that they were doing magical practices, but yet they never used the word witchcraft. And then you've got Ray Howard coming in, in the 1960s. And the evidence would suggest that he took quite a lot of that and actually was the one who publicised it and ran with it. And then Dorian Valiente was initiated into it by him. And I think Dorian Valiente thought it was genuinely an old tradition of witchcraft because a lot of the Covenatha material, not actually that's not, some of the Covenatha material she actually put in her Libra Umbrarum, um, which is the Book of Shadows section of her 1978 book, Witchcraft for Tomorrow. And, um, you know, it's 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 really obvious it's really obvious to me that the stuff in there she's she's basing a lot of it on stuff that was in Ray Howard's Coven of Atho correspondence course but nowhere in her book does she mention the Coven of Atho so she's she's obviously sort of trying to be secretive about it but obviously is intrigued enough about it that she also kind of publishes it with some with there are some changes she's made but there are inst instances of it where it's just absolutely obvious that she's she's got it from the Coven of Atho. Mm. Um, so that's so it obviously intrigued Doreen. And um, I mean, Doreen was just intrigued by the Cardells anyway. I mean, across 20, across 20 years, she used to get on a, she used to go and visit um, Charlwood or rather she used to go as, furtively visit Charlwood where the Cardells were living and she would snoop around their house and sort of make notes of what she was seeing. So she was never really invited, but she'd just go and have a have a good old nosy at what was going on there. <laughs> and she's detailed these things in, in her notebooks. So she she was really enthralled by Charles Cardell and, and what was happening on his estate at, at Charwood. Um, so yeah, it's um it really is it really is quite a quite a fascinating story. I mean, when I was writing it, you just you just couldn't I just heard myself saying you just couldn't invent this. And I think it was definitely a story that wanted to be told as well. Um, because once I'd cracked the door open on it, it, it would just like it all sort of the evidence and things that I never thought in a million years I'd discover we you know started coming through to me um i mean i, I wrote to the uh, the current owners of the house where the cardells lived and um i wrote a story um, not story i wrote a letter just saying oh you know hello i'm just doing some research on some people that used to live in your house and i had no idea the reception that i would get back but they wrote back and they happened to be a couple of druids that were living there um so it was it was really nice synchronicity so i was i was invited to go and visit them and uh, went onto their you know estates and uh, they knew the neighbours well because the neighbours because the estate was divided up past um after the libel case so it's actually somebody else who owns a large part of it but the current owners of Dumblecott which is now called Westcoats they knew the neighbours so we went around the neighbour's house and we went and found the location of the inner grove um where where, where, I, where I believe the location of the inner grove was um, so I mean, it was it was just such a, an interesting story to research and uh, and be part of. Really, it was it was a story that wanted wanted to be known. So I sort of tried to cobble it together as as best as I could um, using the evidence. But it is it's quite. I do find it difficult to talk about it because it's not straightforward. <laughs> well, I think you've done a really great job in in this conversation. Melissa, thank you. Thank you, Rick. <laughs> if people want to find out more about your writing and uh, the book, how best do they do that? Uh, so my website is thewicca.co.uk. So the wicca is uh, T-H-E-W-I-C-A.co.uk. So it's just got one C in it. 
um, or just Google it and I'm sure you'll find it. Um, so yeah, you can buy the book from me via my website. So it's also, I think, on Amazon. I've had some brilliant reviews on it, which is really great. And it's, it's been published by Toff Publications in Loughborough. Um, so that was uh, really great that they gave me that opportunity to uh, to do that, really. <laughs> brilliant. Well, I'll make sure to put all that information in the show notes. Thank you. <laughs> Not at all. Thank you, Melissa. Thanks very much, Rick. <laughs> Cheers. As you might have guessed from our conversation, the Covenant of Atho is quite a difficult subject matter to explore, as in a way, it didn't exist. It might best be described as a legend born out of a series of unusual events, some connected, others completely separate. I do think that it is an interesting and important happening in the modern history of witchcraft in the UK though, and Melissa's book is well worth getting hold of if you enjoyed this episode. You can also find the 2007 article about the coven on her website, along with many more interesting articles on magic, wicca and British witchcraft. Please consider rating this episode wherever you listen and sharing it on social media, as it really helps the podcast to grow and find new listeners. If that's not your thing, then you can just tell a friend who you think might enjoy it, as that would really help too. You can follow some other sphere on Twitter at spherical underscore pod, and subscribe on most of the well-known podcast platforms. You can also support the podcast with a donation via Ko-fi. Details on how to do that are in the show notes. If you'd like to email me here at SphereHQ, the address is someothersphere at gmail.com. It'd be lovely to hear from you. Until next time, be safe and well, and I hope you'll join me again soon for another episode of Some Other Sphere. <laughs>